Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi, thank you for joining us today. My name is Amanda Lyon, and I'll be your host for this conversation with Marianne Ivey. I just completed my HSPAL residency at the University of Wisconsin and am embarking on my first job as a clinical pharmacy manager at the Everett Clinic, part of Optum Care in Seattle. I am so thrilled and honored to welcome with me today Marianne. Marianne was a pioneer in pharmacy leadership and practice change and has many years of experience in the profession at both the University of Washington, Go Dogs, and the University of Cincinnati. Marianne is currently a member on the Board of Pharmacy Specialties. Marianne, before we get started, I would like to offer a heartfelt congratulations for being recognized this year with an ASHP honorary membership. For those unfamiliar with this award, it is a lifetime recognition elected by ASHP's Board of Directors for individuals who have made outstanding contributions to the profession. So Marianne, we want to both congratulate you and thank you for all that you have done for our profession. Uh, Thank you. Very nice to be recognized. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. It's a well-deserved recognition, so we're very appreciative of all that you've done for the profession and especially growing leaders like me, which brings us to today's podcast, which is titled Change is Inevitable, Growth is Optional, Strategies to Influence the Pharmacy Paradigm. So, Marianne, you've become one of the leading experts on influence and have used that skill to drive remarkable practice change forward. Can you start us off by telling us a little bit about your journey with influence? How did you realize how impactful the skill was? Sure. Thank you for the question, Amanda. I think I started by just observing people. And it's an inexpensive learning module, if you will. Um, but it's it was very effective for me. And I've continued to watch people who are influential throughout my career. So when I started, I obviously was watching people who were my bosses, who were closest to me. And I noticed how they influenced action and how people uh, had enthusiasm and so on related to those particular people. And then as I continued in my career, I was very involved or involved myself in professional associations and watched people there. And it was Uh, Nice to see some women as well, and uh, those in particular were Gloria Frankie and Sister Gonzalez of ASHP, and um, I sort of moved over and watched other people in other associations besides ASHP, one who was particularly influential, I thought, because of her communication skills and her ability to inspire uh, through her words was Mary Louise Anderson. And so that was very effective. Then it was very interesting that some of my original bosses also were people in in leadership positions in ASHP and Dave Zills comes to mind as uh, being very influential. Even today, I watch people and for example, I think we can all identify with the influence of Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, Scott Gottlieb, the former uh, FDA commissioner, and Bill Gates. And uh, what I notice about 
their ability to influence is their deep knowledge of their area. So they're experts. So we, we recognize that in, in terms of how they influence us. Their dedication to wanting to do things that are for the benefit of patients and the general public and society at large. And they're not taking themselves terribly seriously. Uh, they are serious, but they also are sort of servant leaders as opposed to looking for personal gain. So those are some of the things that were really helpful to me. I watched others be influential, what those skill sets were that made them influential. And I suppose I started trying to do those things myself. Yeah, thanks for sharing all of that. Um, those are a lot of big shoes to to try to walk in behind Bill Gates, Gloria Frankie, even DZ, who's somebody who's influenced my career thus far. But I feel like I'm probably not the only one thinking this, but you mentioned some kind of bigger skills that we probably don't all have in our toolkit right now, as far as being an expert in the field, you know, being a servant leader and, you know, kind of going through your career with kind of that humble attitude. So I'm just curious from you, like, what have you learned over your career to develop your preferred influencing style? And, and what advice do you have for exploring styles that you maybe are less comfortable with? Well, that's a good question, because I, I did reflect on that. And I think I didn't always um, know how to, how to influence well when I started. Uh, what I did notice was that my influence sometimes was affected because, at least in my opinion, I felt like I had less influence because I was a female. And it started early on clinical teams, which were predominantly led by male residents and male attending physicians. And when I would offer a suggestion about therapeutics, I didn't always feel like I was taken seriously. So I started reflecting about what that meant. So I thought maybe if I'm more serious and I don't act in a frivolous way, my advice will be taken more seriously and I'll be more influential. So I think what I did, I'm already a serious person. So I think I got even more serious and probably didn't smile very much and so forth. And um, I potentially probably overreacted a bit and became more assertive than I intended. But I, I think it's also true of a female, and it's true in my case, that in, in many ways I stood back and waited for information to flow if I was in a group. And, and then I noticed that if I didn't speak up right away, I often lost the opportunity to speak up. And so um, I had to think about that, too. And I wanted to make sure I knew what I was talking about, but I also didn't want to sit back too long. And I found in talking to my female residents that that was not unique to me, that they, they have in many cases said that that was their style as well, as they waited to hear what the, what the groundwork was and what the ballpark looked like before they jumped in and contributed. And then sometimes they found that their voices were ignored when they finally did speak up. So 
I think coming to the table and being ready to go is helpful if you can do that. And that's one of the reflections I had over the years. This, the, the, the issue that I brought up about overreacting was a mid-course correction that I made a little later on when I was working in a group. We were doing role-playing and we were doing negotiation. And, and uh, we were serious about this role-playing because it was in a national leadership program. And one of my colleagues who was in the negotiating role-play said to me, gosh, you looked angry when you were talking about such and such. And I thought, well, I wasn't angry, but I guess that's my, uh, a little bit my overreaction to being serious and to want people to take me seriously. So, so um, I learned that I had to back off a little bit. So, you know, you learn as you go. I think we all do. And we, we eventually come to the style that's comfortable for us. And that I think I, I got there um, through those reflections and, and colleagues who gave me a little feedback. That's important, too. Yeah, that's a great example, Marianne. Um, I think it's probably something that a lot of us can relate to. I know I, I definitely can. So kind of transitioning just a bit, but still on topic. But in reviewing both of your Webb and Whitney lectures and, and kind of talking with you so far today, you know, you're very passionate about leading our profession toward and through a lot of change. You spoke a little bit about what kind of leadership or profession needs to successfully get through that, but can you elaborate on what it means to be a successful influencer for our profession? Well, sure, I'll I'll give it a try. Um, I think that one of the things that helps be influential is that you're a good listener. And good listeners both take influence from others and then in the sharing of that influence back in a dialogue, uh, they, they become influential. So, uh, so good listening skills are, are really important. It is not a one-way street. I think really a, another basic is to really be knowledgeable about your area. And uh, we're, we're lucky in the profession of pharmacy. We have wonderful PharmD education and furthermore, great continuing education so that we can continue to uh, work on our competence. I don't think that should be taken lightly at all. And, and the interesting part of that is that uh, our profession is so dynamic that we really need to uh, keep up with that. The other thing is that people can trust you if you're in a leadership position, or even if you're just a member of the team, and I don't mean just a member of the team, being a member of the team is critical today because our work is so complicated, technical, that I don't believe that any of us can be a, the single expert voice. We need to, to work with each other. But if your team can trust you that you'll take their information uh, you'll act on it in a timely framework. Uh, they begin to then put together the fact that uh, they can trust you as well as admire your expertise. And I think that leads to uh, a credible position that that credibility is really key, not only for your team that you're working on, maybe in the care of patients 
or in policy formation if you're in the management team, uh, and the same if you're working with whoever your boss is. And that combination is, is really great. I, th- I think another thing that's really important besides that basic uh, knowledge and, and trustworthiness is knowing the culture and the strategic vision of your organization. Organizations do things in a way that has developed over a few years and they have a value system and a culture and a good boss uh, will help a newcomer to the organization understand that. And I think even if, if you don't have the opportunity to hear it, you can ask for that if you are a newcomer. So how are things done around here? Could we spend a little bit of time talking about how things get done and what's valued and how you make decisions? I think those are all good questions for a newcomer to ask. And then I think as you get more experienced on your team, you think about how you want to negotiate and influence yourself. And uh, and there are different ways. I think it's sometimes difficult for a, a newcomer in a, in a team to ha- feel like they have assets or resources with which to influence. But you always start, I think, at the basics, that knowledge and being a trustworthy team member. And then if you do have assets, uh, you have other ways to influence. You can influence by saying, well, you know, if we do this, I think this will happen. Or I will share this asset with you if, if we can get together and do this action. So that's another way of, of influencing. Uh, there are people who are just truly inspirational in their, their, they have inspiring ideas that help them be influential. And another way we do it is by recognizing who important stakeholders are in what we want to do. If we want to change a policy, for example, in medication safety, and it will take uh, nursing to do it, and they always wanted something else, can you work so that you can meet their needs as well as your own? And those are that's a bridging style of influence, if you will. So there are ways that you can influence depending on, one, the situation, and two, what it is that you have to meet the other person's needs, whether it's space or you'll give them an opportunity to be part of a policy or, you know, you just need to think about what it is. And if you think about what it is that are the other person's needs and you can meet those needs in some way, then I think you're, you're very influential. Yeah, that, that is a lot of great information. I think there were two things that really resonated with me, Marianne, that you had said that, you know, a lot of the foundations you're describing for being a good influencer are are pretty basic as far as being a good listener, establishing trust with your team and, and trying to be an expert in your area. Um, a lot of those things we learn through school and through residency and just being on the job. And then the other thing I thought you said that was super interesting was being a member of the team and how everybody kind of needs to 
be able to influence and to have these skills to influence others, uh, regardless of who you're trying to influence. So, you know, that's kind of one thing that really fascinates me about this topic of influence is that it can exist on more of a micro level with influencing oneself, but it can also exist more on a macro level with, you know, the whole organizational change or professional change. I'm curious to know from you, how how have you been successful navigating these different spheres of influence? Well, there clearly are different spheres and, and they change within your career. So I think we usually start out by being team members in a smaller group and, and we're really close to that sphere of influence. We're, we're in it. And the way we influence that is by, I think, pulling our fair share, uh, helping others when they need help, asking for expertise from others when we can benefit and, and sharing our expertise freely. Because I think if we keep in mind that we're trying to help, in our case, as pharmacists, the patient or something bigger than ourselves, it's more likely that our influence will be taken. And I think those basic skills of, uh, of being a good team member in a smaller sphere of influence really carry over to the next level that I see, which is if you're a member of the management team, many of those basic behaviors still fit for, for the management team. And then we, we talk about being a good listener, asking for expertise from the people who you're managing, and then doing timely action. I think um, it becomes a, a little bit harder. That sphere of influence is a little bit bigger sometimes a little bit more remote. You're managing people that may not necessarily be even in your own physical space. They may be in another hospital in in health systems. That's the case, but you're still uh, expected to be an, an influencing partner when you're in a management team. And I think then, you know, as your career grows, if you're then reporting at higher levels within the organization, that's another sphere of influence. It may not at the beginning be right at the top, but you may be part of a interdisciplinary team uh, with nursing and with nutrition sciences, for example. Your sphere is increasing. You have, you have more challenge sometimes because other people's interests are maybe quite different than yours. And once again, utilizing those basic behaviors that we talked about in influencing this, the therapeutic team also carry over to that bigger interdisciplinary management team. I think finally, you know, for many uh, of us that are interested in management and leadership, we would like to be at the top of our organization or close to the top and then we need to think about our sphere of influence and executive presence. And that's another way to influence people is uh, our behavior in, in the executive setting. And, and those behaviors are a little bit different. You have to, I think, be aware of your appearance. Uh, although some people downplay that, 
unfortunately or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, it's still very important. Your timeliness, are you on time for meetings? Do you respect uh, others and, and their time so that you're not always coming late to meetings, making others wait? Executive presence also is approachability. How approachable are you? What's your level of agreeableness? Although we're not talking about sort of group think, but we're, we're talking about your general ability to get along because you're dealing with a lot of other people. And I think that that sphere of influence at the executive level is, is in many ways quite different. Although, once again, if you think about the basic behaviors, they can be applied in almost any setting. So those are the things I think about, Amanda, when I'm thinking about spheres of influence. I always look at who are the stakeholders, what are their needs. You know, when I was reporting to the chief operating officer of a system, I knew, for example, he didn't want to be surprised. So if there were things going on in the organization that weren't necessarily great, I let him know. And I always respected his time. I always provided an agenda for our meetings, got there on time, didn't carry on beyond the time that we were supposed to be meeting. You know, all those considerations, because I, uh, I knew what he liked and, and he was very efficient in getting work done. And it, by aligning with his interests, I think my sphere of influence was greater. Yeah, that's a great example, Marianne. So you know, we just added a, a whole new layer of complexity onto an already pretty complex and challenging skill. So I'm just wondering from you, you know, you've long been one of our profession's biggest advocates for advancing clinical practice and, and advocating for pharmacists, our clinicians. But in a lot of ways, we're still kind of on that journey for recognition. So what are your thoughts on how our profession can influence that perspective with both patients and other members of the healthcare team? Well, it's clear that we have a complicated profession. We have a lot of regulations. We're a highly regulated profession. Knowing those regulations is part of the basic uh, knowledge level that managing pharmacists need to have. That knowledge level is always an area of influence. If you're knowledgeable and people can trust that you really do know what you're talking about, that's always an important influential piece. The fact that we are getting not that we are not only complicated but that we're getting more complex is is obvious. And some examples that many of us have experienced recently are the COVID-19 pandemic. That has added complexity to an already complicated uh, profession. And how we behave in complex situations is how we uh, generate current and future influence. And I think our ability in COVID-19 as, as a pharmacy profession to step in and help in a time of what has been fairly chaotic, has had resource constraints and resource competition, and personal risk, actually, as people have gone to work uh, needing to make sure they themselves didn't get sick. How we behave in that situation and how we have behaved, I think, will lead us to, to further influence in the profession. 
And certainly our colleagues in ASHP have, have seen that as well and, and are talking about this at higher levels. So complexity really generates the opportunity for further influence if we can generate that knowledge and our help of being able to deal with the complexity. That's really appreciated. And I really think it increases our ability to influence after those kinds of events. Other examples include maintaining great hospital pharmacy services in the face of a natural disaster like floods and hurricanes. And uh, we have colleagues who've been able to do that and I'm sure if we ask them um, their, their value, their currency in terms of their influence has increased after they've really helped an organization through a chaotic situation. So while we're complicated in normal terms, our profession is, when you add complexity to that with the situations, examples that I provided, I think it's an opportunity to increase our influence depending on our behavior. Yeah, certainly a chaotic time that we're living through now. And, and you know, you had mentioned kind of relying on ASHP and, and having a network of support that helps us collaborate with others, and especially through that organization participation. Um, that's something that we can all do now as practitioners to both provide the best care for our patients and to continue to progress the profession forward. I think another kind of efficient and impactful way to influence the future of our profession is through the training of our future clinicians and leaders. So, Marianne, what are your thoughts on kind of the future of the pharmacy workforce? Well, I, I think it's, uh, it is our future, how we train people to follow us. And clearly, uh, we have a good foundation. We can always improve. And I think that's something that we keep an eye on how populations of patients are changing, how therapeutics are changing, and so on. And so that leads to the importance of good clinical judgment. And I think that's what residency training helps our pharmacists gain is they may have basic knowledge when they get out of PharmD programs, but residencies are great opportunities to really learn clinical judgment. You know, what's the difference between a lab value that is a small increase versus one that's a moderate versus one that's in a serious critical range? That kind of clinical judgment comes through residency training and the care of patients. Similarly, I'd have to say that's in the area of management, our training sort of never stops. I mean, there's the basic residency PGY2 that you've just finished, which is wonderful and provides a great foundation. But you will have, and your colleagues will have to continue, like my colleagues and I have had to continue learning along the way. One of the things that I've taken advantage of in my career is... um, all the things that ASHP has provided in terms of leadership institutes and two-week residencies, for example, and learned from the the highest experts in, in our country and the respected faculty at places like Wharton and so on. Those kinds of things never end. In fact, many people feel experts in uh, the advance of knowledge believe that 
our knowledge changes dramatically every three years. And when you think about that, that that's a very short half-life, if you will, of depending on what we've learned in the past. So, you know, and there are many, many things that we can do. There are many resources. I've mentioned ASHP already, and, and they're, they continue to do great things through the foundation, through providing leadership, through the major meetings of, of, of the year, the mid-year and the summer meeting, where they have great learning communities for us to refresh our knowledge. There are things we can do ourselves as well. I mean, there are resources uh, such as TED Talks and books. Um, reading is probably one of the greatest ways we can continue to update our skills. So I'll stop there for a minute and, and let you react to that. But I think there's more we can talk about in that area. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, you know, like you mentioned earlier, being an expert and having that knowledge is one of the foundations for how to influence, you know, anything moving forward. So it's it's an incredibly important thing to talk about. I loved your concept of kind of this knowledge half-life of three to five years. And I think it's applicable also to our profession. You had this quote from your Whitney address, each of us needs to shift our paradigm or it will be shifted for us. And I think it really reflects on how quickly change happens in healthcare, sometimes unexpectedly, especially with what we're going through now with the COVID pandemic. So Marianne, kind of what are your reflections on the evolution of our profession and what what should we be considering for the future? Well, I think we um, we need to watch all the input that we're we're seeing now. I think we're we're seeing the benefit of telehealth, for example. I think we should be taking some messages from that that there's a lot that we can do with technology to take care of our patients, and there's a lot we can do with technology to learn. As we are watching colleges and all levels of education get better at virtual learning. We have a lot of improvements to make, and I think we're worried about the quality uh, of education that's all virtual. And so I don't think anybody believes that we'll always be doing all of our education that way, uh, because there's a lot to be gained by being shoulder to shoulder and side conversations and so on that really address our individual needs that are hard to do in the virtual world. But I, I think, though, that part of my message with the Whitney Address was in a shifting paradigm is if we see things only in the old way that we've always seen them in the old pattern, in the old model, and don't pay attention to new stimuli or new ways of doing things, we, we will be in way behind and other, other people, other professions, other countries will bypass us quickly. So looking at data and not trying to make it fit into old patterns or old ways we do things and defending old ways it you know is something that we've learned in the past with industries that haven't fared so well when you insist on doing things in the old-fashioned way, as we say, you're bypassed. And I think in our profession, one of the things we 
we do that can help us is listen to voices that are different, that see things in a different way, that sort of think out of the box. And I'm always interested in people who seem to have a quirky idea, but if you dissect it a little bit, you you see opportunities for the future. And I think clearly the whole technology world has done exactly that. They've looked at things that we do and said, well, there's a barrier there. How could we do that better? So the barrier is removed. And I think in our profession, uh, we need to do that. We need to streamline. We need to get rid of barriers by doing things differently. And so I see for us a great opportunity in pharmacy to do that now. A pandemic sort of does that to you. It makes you reflect on what did we have to do in order to meet this emergency in these urgent times. And and then look at them and say, well, how can we employ those different activities and processes in going forward? Maybe we can benefit. And and, uh, that's the challenge I think that pharmacy has now, whether you're talking about payment reform and provider payment for pharmacists, or whether you're talking about technology or whether you're talking about partnerships that we should have that get us to a more efficient, effective, and cost-effective place. Yeah, that's all great reflections and thoughts for kind of where our profession is heading in the future. Um, Marianne, I want to thank you. I think we could continue to talk all day long, but that's all the time that we're going to have today for this podcast. But again, a heartfelt thank you, Marianne, for joining me. And one final huge congratulations on your ASHP honorary membership and a huge thanks for all of your dedication to making our profession better. And then thank you everyone for listening. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.